Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and today's episode uh, coming to you from lockdown, uh, so we're doing this remotely, uh, remote recording, um, and today, uh, well this month marks the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Slater's Knoll in the Bougainville campaign of 1945, and this is one of those, uh, I mean the entire campaign, but specifically this battle is not particularly well known, like so many of these smaller actions that took place during the Pacific War, so I thought it was a great opportunity to just dig a little bit deeper into the stories of some of these absolutely fascinating actions that took place, particularly in that later part of the war. Uh, and joining me to talk about it is a regular contributor to the program. It's Dr. Carl James from the Australian War Memorial. Carl, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me yet again. So the Battle of Slater's Knoll, why don't we start? I mean, we did uh, about 18 months ago, we did a fascinating podcast all about the Bougainville campaign. So if people want to go back and, and, and hear all about the campaign in depth, I recommend that they listen to that podcast. Can you give us your quick overview of why the Australians were even in Bougainville in the first place and, 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 and the structure and, the, uh, and, the, and the, the outcomes of that campaign? Oh, yeah, it's too easy. Well, I'd also recommend people go back and listen to uh, your back catalogue with some more information. Uh, but if we cast our minds back to 1944-1945, or even really the wartime years, so Bougainville was an Australian-mandated territory. Uh, it came to Australia after the First World War. It had been, uh, Bougainville had been a former German colony. Then at the end of the First World War, uh, Germany lost, Imperial Germany lost its ter- territory. So New Guinea and Bougainville were mandated to Australia by the League of Nations. Uh, so we moved in as a colonial power, essentially. And then in 1942, the Japanese, uh, you have the beginning of the Pacific War. And in early 1942, the Japanese take Rabaul. In New Britain, Rabaul becomes the major base uh, for Japanese operations in the South Pacific. Um, the Japanese are focusing, say, in Papua and Kokoda, as well as Guadalcanal. Uh, they invade Bougainville with a very small force, um, but they still take control of the island. And then uh, following the Japanese defeat at Guadalcanal, so in early 1943, the Japanese pull their forces back to uh, other parts of the Solomon Island chain, particularly Bougainville, and there are some 60,000 Japanese um, naval soldiers and um, civilian labourers on the island, occupying the island of Bougainville. 
And then in late 1943, as the Allies now start to go into defensive, so in 42, uh, the Australians, the American forces in the Pacific were in the back foot with fighting these defensive actions. The tide turns in Papua and then Bougainville, uh, sorry, on Papua and in the Solomon Islands. Then from 43, the Allies go on the offensive. So in late 1943, the US Marines land on a place called uh, Torikina, which was on the west coast of Bougainville developed that into a major a major base uh, and the Americans move into the area because they want to make to help cut off and isolate the Japanese from the base at Rabaul uh, and then the Americans are there for about 12 months so first you have the US Marines and later on they are replaced by US Army soldiers and then so we're now moving very quickly through to late 1944 and at this time this is when the Australians really return to the theatre so they replace the Americans the Americans are going off and focusing on the Philippines and the second Australia Corps commanded by Lieutenant General Stanley Savage he takes command and so we have by late 1944 the Australians are now taken over Torikina and they're looking at um how they're going to fight this offensive campaign or an aggressive campaign against the Japanese who've now been occupying uh, the island of Bougainville for some, well, two years, two and a bit years. So that kind of gets us to the, the start of the story. And if we cast our minds back too, once Savage took over with Torikina, well, took over command at Torikina, command of the Bougainville, he divided the island into three areas. So if you're looking up, looking at a map of Bougainville, Bougainville and I'll give you one um, to put online if you like that, um, so you've got the, some of the forces go north, some of the Australian forces go north to fight up towards Buka, which was a big Japanese naval base. Other soldiers fight across the central part of the island, across the central sector. Uh, so they follow the Numa Numa Trail along and they cross Bougainville's rugged spine. Um, but the main force, the Japanese, are really in the south of the island, concentrated around Boone. Uh, and some 70% of Japanese forces who are on Bougainville, they're in that southern part of the island. So once the Australians move into Tarakina, um, we take over in November 44, and then from January 1945, uh, part of the Australian force, and the biggest part of that was units based around or part of the 3rd Division, um, who were militiamen with some AIF reinforcements, they're now moving south very slowly and tentatively, um, making their way south towards Torikina, oh, from Torikina, south towards Boone. And so that's how the first few months of 1945 begins for um, many uh, soldiers, particularly soldiers from the 7th Brigade, which were part of the 3rd Division. And they started to move south towards the main um, concentration of Japanese on the island. Carl, that, um, just talk to me about that decision for the Australians to even launch an offensive in the first place. Because we, we covered this in quite a lot of detail in our previous pod, in the, the podcast about Bougainville. But uh, let's just touch on it for the sake of this, uh, this discussion as well. Because it's, people have been arguing about it ever since, whether the Australians should have attacked or not. Because the Americans uh, had a very, um, a very uh, live and let live attitude to the Japanese on Bougainville, noting that they were cut off. But the Australians, when they got there, launched this quite aggressive uh, series of attacks against them. So just talk to me about that decision to bring the fight back to the Japanese. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's something that the the soldiers themselves at the time, so Brigadier Takhammer, for example, he commanded the 15th Brigade. Uh, By the time his formation came into action in mid-1945, he was already critical, saying, well, why are we fighting this aggressive war on Bougainville? The Japanese are holed up. Um, We're not going to, this won't bring about the end of the war any faster um it won't really change the course of the outcome of the pacific war why are we doing it so it, there have always been questions about the necessity and the justification for the campaign but something that's really quite key is that um even in mid-1945 so when hammer gets there he already has an element of hindsight he's already looking back 
So the Australians, as I mentioned before, Savage and the Second Australia Corps, they start to arrive in Bougainville in October. Um, the Australians receive very little information from the American as from the Americans as to the strength, the size, and the disposition of Japanese forces. So when the Americans arrived, so the US Marines and later on in the army, um, the Japanese force had put in a very strong counterattack. They tried to break through the American perimeter at Tor uh, Torikina. And that was around about March of 1944. Um, the Japanese though, were heavily defeated. Um, they suffered very heavy casualties. Uh, and they then withdrew to the, the fringe of the island as such in many ways. And the Americans were very content just to stay within their base. They do do some patrol work. Um, there's some actions that are being fought. But in the main, the Americans, as you suggest, or as you um, said quite clearly, adopted a live and let live approach. Why... When we get there, why do we go on the offensive? I mean, that's a great question. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One, um, well, really, there's a few. One of the key questions and really are is that because Savage and the Australians had very little information about the Americans, they didn't know how strong the Japanese were. So while I mentioned in our intro that there were some 60,000 Japanese deployed on the island, Savage at that time had no idea there were that many. The information and the intelligence he was dealing with were, were estimates of maybe 15 to 20, or up to 20 or 25,000 Japanese soldiers. So Savage gets to um, Bougainville. He thinks, well, firstly, that the Japanese have been cut off. Um, he knows they're in a pretty poor condition from a health point of view. They're, um, they're suffering from, uh, they're not getting resupplies from the Japanese base at Rabao. They are largely cut off. They're not getting supplies either by air or by sea. Um, there's mass starvation. Um, the Japanese health are in pretty, very poor shape, um, in pretty poor form. So, you know, the Japanese aren't going to be looking to be too threat, too threatening. Um, there's no air cover. The Japanese don't have any tanks. So you think, well, this is almost like a weak enemy. We think we can knock them off with only about 20,000 troops deployed across the entire island. From Savage's point of view, he knows he's going into a very large, very strong force. So the 2nd Australia Corps is based on the 3rd Division, um, as well as the 11th and then the 23rd Infantry Brigades, who acted as independent brigade groups. So essentially, Savage is about thirty to 33,000 Australians troops at his um, disposal. He thinks he outnumbers the Japanese. He thinks the Japanese are cut off, isolated and starving to death. And there's also this view too that because we've been deployed to Ireland, to Bougainville, to Garrison and clear the island, he doesn't know how long this campaign is going to last. Everyone is thinking and predicting that the war will continue against the Japanese at least until 1946. So Savage doesn't want to be in command of a very large formation, you know, one and a half divisions essentially, um, just sitting on in their hands in the islands, not doing much, twiddling their thumbs. The live and let live approach the Americans adopted was never part of the Australian ethos or that plan to go out and to, you know, to, to master no man's land and to engage with the enemy. So when Savage does set about uh, these plans for an aggressive campaign, he does it in a very, um, almost like a very limited way. So he will move their forces, and a great example is in the southern sector. So when the 7th Brigade do deploy south, they do so largely with a lot of small patrolling action. Um, they always operate with under the cover of artillery. Um, the Australians have got air support in the form of New Zealand fighter bomber squadrons, as well as the Australian uh, um, squadron, Army Cooperation squadrons flying railways and um, boomerangs. So we have the sense of overwhelming support in arms and firepower. Uh, and their campaign, while it is aggressive and always creeping south, is very much a slow, grueling campaign Savage isn't pushing the Australians to advance really quickly. There's no 
um, uh, ambitious time frame to wrap up this campaign. He just wants to keep going um, to slowly push towards the Japanese. Now, likewise, from the Japanese point of view, it takes a while for them to um, really come to grips that the Australians are there to fight an offensive campaign. So while we took over in late 44, it's not until about January or February of 1945 that the Japanese senior commanders um, realised that, hang on, the Australians here, then they main business and they're actually going on the offensive. And part of the reason why the Japanese start to become increasingly more aggressive, um, say, as the Australian soldiers reach the area of Slater's, um, Slater's Knoll, for example, is because the Australians are now starting to move across the Japanese garden areas. So while the Japanese have been cut off and isolated from Rabaul and elsewhere, um, how, do they, how do they get their food? Well, they have to grow their own food. They grow their own crops. That takes time. And as the Australians are moving through the garden areas for the Japanese, the Japanese soldiers become much more determined, become more aggressive because they need to keep their food production areas, which are on the outskirts of their main base around Boone. So the... Um, and the Japanese in the hard spot, there's nowhere for them to go. They're going to have to dig in and they're going to have to default and have to fight because they're not going to surrender. Um, so this is why around about from March onwards, you see in the southern sector, what the, it becomes the main focus of the fighting on the island. It adds a real human element to that story, Carl. I wasn't aware of that, um, that, that uh, angle of the uh, story about the Japanese defending their gardens. But what a... <laughs> What a you know a terrifying and a very human element that adds to the entire story. The the, the you know it's it's always hard to feel sympathetic for the Japanese during the Pacific War, but when you hear those stories about men starving and trying to protect food, you do it does make you realise that at the end of the day they're all they they were people as well. Oh look, hundred percent, Matt. I think um, given the space space of time, you know, it's seventy five years after the end of the Second World War, we can only re- really come to terms with these questions and these notions. If we think about well, what's the other side doing? What's on the other side of the hill? Or in the case of Bougainville, what's on the opposite side of that river crossing? Why are the Japanese fighting? You know, they're not, they're stuck at Bougainville. They're not in a position to get to, say, um, Rabaul. They're not going to go to New Guinea. They're certainly not coming anywhere near mainland Australia. What's their motivation to keep fighting? Because if they don't, they're going to die. <laughs> like, they'll either be cut off, they'll starve to death. And during the course of the campaign, from the Japanese perspective, so from, um, say, from about 42 to 43 until 45, there's something like 20 or 30,000 Japanese soldiers die on the island. Like, and most of them, uh, the Americans kill around about 10,000 Japanese, another 10,000 or 8,000 are killed during the Australian campaign. The rest of that gap, that other 10 to 20,000, die of sickness and disease and malnutrition from the Japanese point of view. It's a horrific campaign. Um, and in many areas, there are little small pox of Japanese resistance where you have a small unit, a very small subunit, and they are, um, most of the time, they're in a pretty poor state a lot of the strains a lot of the soldiers the Jap- sorry a lot of the japanese soldiers the strains first came up against were soldiers who were um poorly equipped very poorly led um under malnutrition mal- malnutrition so they're undernourished um and because they do capture a lot well a relatively large number of prisoners um they know the japanese in a pretty weak state which again is another reason why the australians go on offensive campaign because when your enemy is weak and starving you know this is something which we can achieve relatively light casualties from our own side from that japanese perspective when the japanese realized the australians were being aggressive and advancing and taking the fight to them did the japanese respond in a cohesive way in a you know that you said there were 60,000 people on the island did the Japanese respond as a group and say okay these tens of thousands of soldiers are going to counter-attack and are going to defend in this manner or was it more isolated pockets of Japanese uh, 
that were fighting to protect their own local area? That is a great question, Matt, and it's something which I've never really come to terms to grapple with really quite well, given the um, the lack of Japanese sources, but we can come back to that. So in the north, if you um, recall, I described how, uh, from the Australian perspective, we divide the island into three areas. So up in the north, in the northern sector, in around Buka and Buka, Buka Passage, um, that northern part of the island was largely under control of Japanese naval forces, and they fought very effectively uh, to slow the Australian advance, uh, and particularly around places, say, at, um, at Porton Plantation, for example, in June '45. A small amphibious strain amphibious source lands um, and suffer very heavy casualties and just goes to custard pretty quickly. So in the north, the Japanese fight quite well. In that southern, in the central sector around Numa Numa, this is really where you have pockets of Japanese um, soldiers. They're very small, they're poorly fortified, and they're largely left to their own devices, just trying to grow crops. Um, and those soldiers are very poorly led, and the Australians almost knock them off at will. So. In, Rand, in that cent, uh, the central sector in Numa Numa, pretty poor conditions. But in the south, because this is where the main Japanese base is, they become quite aggressive uh, sort of slowly. So you have General Hakataki, who's a commander of the Japanese 17th Army. He's the overall commander. He had been in command at Guadalcanal, but his health fails him. And he's kind of moved sidewards in face, um, in, almost replaced by Lieutenant General Kanda. Now, Kanda is a very aggressive Japanese commander. He wanted to push his units forward, so the sixth or the Japanese 6th Division to go on the offensive. But there's also this split between um, what we do know, a split between regular Japanese officers and the wartime, younger wartime commissioned um, army officers. And they thought, and the, that latter group, so the younger wartime commissioned officers, thought um, Kanda and others weren't being aggressive enough. The fact that, because the Japanese were essentially trying to trade territory for time. So while the Australians are moving into their garden areas, into the, their resources areas, um, the Japanese are also making very strong fortifications against Boont in, this, uh, well, in the southern part around um, the Miva River, for example, and various other places. Really, really strong fortifications. Because the Japanese hadn't thought about a land campaign. While they'd been occupying Bougainville for several years, um, Hakitaki and others had always assumed that if the Allies came, it would be with an amphibious landing. They didn't think the Australians would, or an enemy would launch a campaign advancing on land by hundreds of kilometres and just slowly grinding southwards like a, by land. So they weren't really prepared for that type of attack. They thought that was just pointless and too slow. Like you take casualties by being... Um, sometimes too hesitant. So what the Japanese are developing in the early part of 45 is just trying to figure out how best to respond to the Australians with the resources that they have. And the Japanese don't have tanks. They don't have a lot of um, vehicles or lorries, for example. They don't have barges or small landing craft to move their forces around in the same way that the Australians can do. The Japanese don't have um, air support. So if they are going to go on, like and they could dig in and they can do very, um, and they would often... Uh, digging their artillery pieces, for example, along the side of the track, or they would fortify fortify one side of a river crossing. So you know, they would dig in, deploy the machine guns, deploy the mortars, and wait to be attacked by the Australians. But they're not in a great position to mount a big counteroffensive because if the only way for them to move, for the Japanese to move, is on foot, and so that means going out through the jungle, you're slogging um, through tracks, 
they're not developing the roads and infrastructure in the same way the Australians are. So the Australian infantry are always advancing in addition to artillery, but they're also advancing with engineers. The engineers are developing the roads, um, you know, widening the roads, making them waterproof, laying corduroys, laying timber across them so you can have vehicle trains, jeeps can come up. They can bring the, drag the artillery guns with them uh, and then later on tanks as well. So all those material assets and that material advantage that the Australians are able to use and deploy very successfully, um, the Japanese don't have any of that. So what they've got are basically individual soldiers, or small groups of individual soldiers who are prepared to fight and to die. They're full of bravery. They're full of um, reckless courage. But essentially, they only have a rifle and sometimes a light machine gun or a medium machine gun. And that's about it. So it's a very, um, it's not a fair fight in many ways. It's not a balanced fight in many ways. Well, I think that sums up lots of what was going on in the, in the Pacific War at this time as well. Um, and and there's, there's numerous accounts all across the Pacific of cut-off Japanese fighting these desperate last stands. Let's talk about Slater's Knoll in particular, this battle that took place um, 75 years ago this month, because um, for, from my perspective, I've always been very interested in this because it, uh, it features a hero of mine, Reg Raddy, that I know we've talked about many times, Carl, who was from the West Wyalong district where I grew up, and hello to everyone out in West Wyalong. Um, and he's a bit of a local hero out there. Um, tell us about the Battle of Slater's Knoll, because I think in, in many ways it typifies these smaller actions that took place in the Pacific that we don't know about. But to the men who were there, these were pretty savage fights and, 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 you know, and, and, and something they would remember for the rest of their lives. So tell us about Slater's Knoll in particular. Well, even that notion that, well, yeah, look, 100% I agree with you, but even that notion this is a small action is something that's um, pretty remarkable because then in, by any other count, um, Slater's Null would be an epic stand in terms of Australian military history if you look at it, some of the actions that were fought uh, post-45, for example. So the campaign itself, as I mentioned, the, the 7th Brigade have been pushing south from Torikina. Um, they cross the Puritaya River and they are... Uh, particularly in this case now by March, by late March, it's the 25th Battalion. The 25th Battalion from Toowoomba originally. Um, many members of the battalion had fought at Milne Bay in 1942. So there were some veterans amongst them. Um, but the brigade is moving south. and from But from late, and when I'm talking about the brigade, so really you'd have one uh, Australian Infantry Brigade consists of three battalions. With the 7th Brigade, you have the, the 9th Battalion, and they're fighting along the coast at this time. You have the 25th Battalion, who is led by Lieutenant General, oh, sorry, Lieutenant Colonel John McKenna. So McKenna and the 25th are the, the main force who fight at Slater's Knoll. And there's also the 61st Battalion um, as well to make up that three battalions within that 7th Brigade. So each battalion is doing their own thing. Two are fighting. One is nominally in reserve. Um, figuratively resting, um, supposedly resting, but in reality, they're doing a lot of labouring work. Um, they're also patrolling on the fringes because there's a concern the Japanese will infiltrate around and behind the Australian positions. And uh, so all of the brigades employed um, in this advanced south. So from late March, the 25th Battalion headquarters dig in a position called Slater's Knoll. Um, now, this is just in the big bend of the Puritaya River. Uh, the river itself was quite wide. It was about 10 metres wide. And as the name suggests, it was uh, they dug on in on a position that was a, a bit of a rise a raised in the area, which is called a, a knoll. So battalion headquarters is there. And the rest of the battalion's companies reach... Um, moving further and further south. So they're advancing very slowly, sort of leapfrogging from one to the other. 
But from late March, the Japanese start to gather their force. They know the Australians are now on the offensive. And so General Kander, the Japanese commander, comes up with a really ambitious plan to employ two of his brigades, sorry, two of his regiments, which are a little bit like an Australian brigade. And he wants to um, meet, the, meet the Australians head on and then sweep them sort of off to the coast. Um, so it's a big plan to push the Australians back into the sea and to stop this southern advance. And so from late March, the strung out companies from the 25th Battalion, each one of those um, experienced increasingly more pressure from the Japanese. There's lots more contacts. And a lot of these fighting is now taking place at night. So, you, yeah, there's three or four days or five or six days, really, where each of these small strung out Australian dug in positions is attacked and overwhelmed, um, almost overwhelmed by the Japanese. And so you've got the rest of the 25th Battalion being forced back from late March into early April. Uh, and then this leads us to the point around about of the 4th and now the 5th of April, 1945, which is really the climactic moment of the Battle of Slater's Knoll, where you've got um, the elements of the 25th Battalion dug in to their backs. They have a very wide river um, and in front of them, they've dug in a very strong fortified defensive position. So the Australians have got um, zigzag perimeter of barbed wire, uh, foxholes, trenches, bunkers. These often, many of these bunkers had um, timber cover, so it has, they had some overhead cover. Um, at battalion headquarters too, they were dug in with their Bren-like machine guns. There's a Vickers medium machine gun. There are mortars. Uh, and the Australians also have uh, a two-pound anti-tank gun. So there's quite a lot of firepower dug in on this one little feature. So for about a week now, from late March into the first few days of April, the Japanese have been pushing the 25th Battalion and they now start, as well as um, sort of fanning out and having contacts with the other units of the 7th Brigade along the, roughly along the Kuratai River, and, but there's this general pushback uh, and the 25th Battalion is very much encircled, or essentially it's besieged on the 5th of April 1945. What were the Japanese trying to achieve and, and how, how effective was it in the, the fight that they took to the Australians at Slater's Knoll? So they do pretty well. The advantage Japanese have is that while I've just been earlier before talking about their disadvantages um, the, in terms of not having a lot of fire support, that they don't have tanks, they don't really have artillery, some artillery, but not a lot. They do have uh, a lot of men, and these men were brought up from further areas in this. Well, they were reinforcements from Boone, basically. So they're in a better state, and they were physically stronger and better fed than the Japanese soldiers the Australians had already been fighting. So the Japanese, are in a, they're not too bad, but they also just have momentum and drive. And what they're really trying to do is just to overwhelm um, the Australians. And when I say overwhelm, I mean kill. The, the, they are there to, the Japanese are there to destroy the Australians, take Slater's Knoll and push whoever of the Australians to survive that attack back into the sea. This is a very desperate um, motion, or action from the Japanese. It's almost like all or nothing. This is their big roll of die. They can do one big punch, and what the Japanese want is to really knock the Australians for six. Now, it's doing fairly well into the first part of April um, when the 25th Battalion, because they're on the back foot, and they are essentially besieged. So while the Australians have very strong prepared defensive positions, um, they are. They also know, too, that they're all, they are cut off, so it's hard. it will be very hard for them to get reinforcements in terms of ammunition, supplies, or to evacuate um, the wounded, which then brings us to the the early hours of the 5th of April. So you've got 
the Australian soldiers, and keep in mind too, these guys from the 25th Battalion, they had already been in action for several weeks. Um, so they're tired, they're exhausted. The Japanese have been pushing for the last week. You know, they know, they already know, the Australians already know some of their mates have been killed, who've been wounded, because um, the wounded are brought back to Slater's Knoll. So they know the Japanese are on the offensive. The Japanese are coming straight for them. It's dark. It's at night. The first part of the fighting on, on the twenty on the fifth of April starts in darkness. So it's around about five a.m. It's still pitch black. The Japanese have got bugles and flares. There's noise from you know machine guns firing. There's mortars, but for, and the Japanese break through some parts of the Australian defensive perimeter. Um, so you have pretty vicious hand-to-hand fighting in some instances. The Australians who, depending on where they're deployed in this snow, so you think there's like a circle. If you're on the outer perimeter from the Australian point of view, they're in that weapons pit, they're on the front line, they're fighting. But their mates who are deployed a little bit behind them, so the other elements within the battalion headquarter company, for example, they know they've got their friends in front, so they can't fire. They can see it's pitch black, there's movement. If, you know, are you going to open up with your light with your brand light machine gun, are you going to fire your rifle when you don't know if that's your mate or is that a Japanese soldier? So the, the noise, the stress would have been intense. And it's only when the sun starts to rise, so it's around about 6, um, a little bit after 6 a.m., and you can start to see the light in the battlefield, then the Australians who are dug in a much better position to concentrate their fire against the Japanese. Likewise, the Japanese, when the sun comes up, realise they're trapped because you have a big mass of men um, and what I'm saying, it was incredibly close, like 100, 150 metres apart from each other at some part of the time. So some Japanese troops, they're caught out in the light. They can't break through the barbed wire. They can't rush, you know, a Vickers meeting machine gun, brand light machine guns, because the Australians had very successfully deployed their defensive fires, their ring of defensive fire. So when the light comes up, the advantage is now with the Australians. Uh, and so for that first few hours of the bullet, well, um, the hours in sunlight, the, the dawn, so 6, 7, 8 a.m., for example, as the morning rolls on, um, the, it's a bit of a stalemate. The Japanese are trapped. Um, afterwards, some of the Japanese survivors later wrote accounts that liken it to um, trying to break through the Australian position, like trying to walk through um, a rain of bullets. You know, the, the Japanese are pinned down. There's a lot of sniper action that's taking place. Uh, and it's not until about midday that the Australians elsewhere, you have some tanks from the 2nd 4th Armoured Regiment. They're able to break through. So they're able to bring in some supplies, um, some ammunition to the 25th Battalion who've been besieged and fighting for their lives. Uh, and with their arrival too, so McKenna, the Australian Battalion Command, is like, right, this is the advantage. This is that moment w- which would just turn the battle. And then he deploys and asks the tanks to then tanks to um, engage the Japanese who have been surrounding the perimeter. And once the Japanese see the tanks rolling, so once the the, the Matildas open up with their uh, their main armament, so their their two pounder gun as well as their machine guns, uh, that's when the Japanese just break, and it's that tipping point in the in the battle. So it's a, and it's a classic account of like the cavalry coming um, to save the day in many ways. It just sounds like such horrific fighting, and um, you know, as was all these battles in the in the Pacific War. What was the, what was the final outcome after uh, after all this uh, this toing and froing on both sides? I think, um, in many ways, there are some. So during the fight, there was an Australian official photographer, and he's with the battalion in the battalion headquarters, and he actually takes some incredible combat photographs um, during that morning fighting of the fifth of, of the fifth of April. Um, and so if you want to get a sense of just the visual aspect, you can look in the line and look at some of those photos. It's just incredible because it's the, 
the smell because already people are talking about uh, the stench of dead bodies, um, you know, the churned up earth from the explosion, from the artillery fire, um, the smell of cordite. So there's a very strong, this, the, your senses would have been overwhelmed by the smell. Um, in front of the Australian perimeter, there was just uh, basically a carpet of Japanese bodies. The, the lower foliage and the jungle surrounding was all shredded. Um, so it would have looked and smelt horrific. And in terms of the casualties, um, there were something like from the 28th of March through the 5th of April, 620 Japanese soldiers were killed. And that's not an estimate. That's the Australians counting bodies. It's just, it's just horrific. I saw a photo when I was doing my research for this showing the, the Australians just throwing bodies into a pit. Um, the numbers of Japanese killed were, you know, just, just extraordinary in this fighting. Oh, it's pretty horrific. There were three mass graves dug in front of Slater's Knoll. Um, after the action, there were three mass graves, like a bulldozer came in, just dug these massive, massive burial pits. Um, and the Japanese bodies are just very unceremoniously dumped. Well, they're searched first, so they go through their pockets looking for information, maps, um, intelligence reports. Uh, and then afterwards, they're then dragged into this into um, these three mass graves. Because the Australian soldiers themselves, some left pretty horrific accounts of just the smell. They all had to, they all tried to cover their um, their face and their nose from the smell. And often used the slings from their rifles to pull the Japanese corpses into, into these big burial pits. So it's pretty horrific. So you have... Over 600 Japanese are killed. Now, from the Australian point of view, um, between January and April, the 25th Battalion lost 36 officers and men killed and 154 wounded. And the entire 7th Brigade um, lost 70 dead and 620 wounded. So it was... When you have artillery and tanks, that material advantage was with the Australians and they inflicted very heavy casualties and fatalities on the Japanese. Carl, one thing that strikes me about this is we're here talking about this battle. It's the 75th anniversary, but I haven't seen any news coverage on the on the 75th anniversary of this battle. I haven't, you know, there hasn't been wide coverage of it or commemorations. I understand why. I mean, in addition to the fact that there's so much going on in the world at the moment for the news to cover, it's just there's so many of these battles that have potentially just slipped through the cracks of history. In your position at the Australian War Memorial, how do we shine more of a light on these actions, because they were incredibly important to the men who served there, to the families of the men who served, especially to the families of the men who were killed. How 75 years later, not just with this battle, but all these complicated actions of the Pacific War, how do we bring them more to the attention of the public? That's a great question, Matt. I don't really feel as though I have a very satisfactory answer. So in addition to writing an amazing book about the Bougainville campaign... Um, <laughs> Absolutely, and I suggest everyone go out and grab it. It's a, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, The Hard Slog, Australians in the Bougainville Campaign, 1944-1945, um, available in all good bookshops and online. But in addition to writing a book about Bougainville, I don't really know how we can do it beyond things such as your podcast stories, um, going out, doing uh, you know media releases, if possible, and when we're allowed to travel. <laughs> go back to the battlefields and explore but it's really hard because i was asked this question yesterday by a journalist who's talking about the battle of retamone creek and it's basically the same question you know why don't more people know about creek why don't more people know about slater's knoll uh why don't we know more about almost 
insert name of any other battle campaign or action? And it's a really hard question to answer because if you think about the Second World War, Australia's experience and just the Australian experience was just so diverse. You know, you have um, six years worth of fighting deployed to North Africa, the Mediterranean, Europe, um, and all across the Pacific. It's really hard because there are so many competing stories, and I think it's the complexity of our involvement in that conflict that then makes it very hard to pull out. Um, so, you know, Torikina, um, Porton Plantation, Slater's Knoll, they will never resonate with the same power of, say, Tobruk, Changi or Kokoda. But what we can do, and this always comes back to what I've, I've said and preached um, a lot when I've been talking to you, is we just have to ask new questions. You know, I don't think we can be satisfied with there's one book on a topic um, or there is one television documentary or there's one podcast. We, this is on us to get out there and ask these questions and tell these stories. And we have to do it now. You know, this is the 75th anniversary of 1945. Those Australian men and women who lived and served during the Second World War the youngest of those veterans are now in their late 90s. These men and women are not going to be with us for very much longer. And if we don't start to tell these stories now, if we don't ask new questions, then we will have lost that opportunity forever. So the emphasis is really on all of us, the people who are interested, whether you're a professional historian, whether you are, um, I won't say an amateur historian, but you just have that sense of this is what you want to do, um, or just interested in family history. It is on all of us to ask these new questions, record these stories, and just take part in a general conversation and to disseminate your research and your findings so that other people can, um, you know, we can all build on each other's work and interests. It's very well said, Carl, and I think we have an obligation to those men and women who fought in this war to uh, to, to maybe dig a little deeper and uh, uncover some of those stories. Hopefully what we've done today is, uh, has shed some light on uh, a very interesting chapter for people. And, um, mate, thanks so much for joining us. You're one of our most popular contributors, so it's always a great pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time, mate. Thanks, Matt. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.